very much. That was a beautiful song and so fitting for this special weekend. This is a special time for a Christian. My daughter, she has this encyclopedia and it has various entries and, and the one that it has for Christianity includes things like Christians believe that uh, we should do good things and, uh, and love God and that Jesus was born and is the son of God. And it, it kind of leaves a, a few gaps, if you, if you know what I mean. Not quite the whole picture. And uh, so Joel, a little bit frustrated at this, uh, was explaining to Adeline and Maxwell that this, is, this isn't the whole picture, that Jesus wasn't just born, but he also died in our place. That seems like a big deal for Christians, right? His birth isn't so significant if there was no death. And, and so she was just kind of talking out loud, or thinking out loud rather, and, and she suggested that, that Easter might be more important than Christmas. And, and Adeline agreed with that idea, but then said, but wait, Mama, why don't we have decorations for Easter? If Easter's so much more important, Right? So ladies, this is your, your task now. Figure out how to make Easter a big deal in your home or, or in my home. Help my wife figure that out. <laughs> Can we pray as we begin and dive into God's word? Father in heaven, this is a, a special weekend for us to think about you and your sacrifice. You poured out all of heaven on our behalf. And we just want to have your wisdom, your understanding. We want your word to pierce our hearts and transform us today. Please do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God did something that no other God in all of human conception has ever done. Nobody imagined that it would be possible or that any God would want to do it. But the real God, the only true God, he gave his life in exchange for mine. This is a, a big, big deal. And it's a, a really complex story and it's filled with all these theological things that are really important. In fact, every theological concept is kind of built into Jesus' life, death, and really everything that, that happened there. And, and the backstory is that God became a human. We call that the incarnation. And then this human, the son of God, the son of man, he lives a perfect life. He, he did what Adam failed to do, and, and he replaces Adam's failure. And, and that's a beautiful backstory, but, but the, the focus of our attention is really the last week of Jesus' life. And, and the, the story that we read in the Bible, we read it from this distant omniscient narrator's perspective. We see all the pieces. We see the, see the spiritual back end and we see all the disciples and all the storylines come together and we know what's going to happen. And we've spent the last 2,000 years theologizing about it. I, I doubt theologizing is actually a word, but it, you know what I mean, right? We've been making this story so much about the theology that we failed to comprehend the deep emotion and relationship that is connected to these, these people that are in this story. 
So what I'd like to do for just a couple minutes is pretend that we're a character, not, not a character in the story, but we're experiencing the story in real time. Forget what you know is going to happen and just kind of experience this with me for a moment. And, and you're, you're not like, I don't know, a disciple or a guard or anything like that. Just you're an observer, uh, an evaluator of this story. And we'll just say that you have the ability not just to see the human side, but the spiritual side of the story as well. Can you imagine with me from that vantage point? Now, we got to do this in time. So let's step back about a week, and we'll start with Jesus entering Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. He's coming in like a king would, and all Israel is excited. There's momentum behind this, and it seems like everybody knows that Jesus is going to be king. He's Messiah. He's, he's their redeemer. He's going to solve their problems. He's going to overcome evil. It's going to be fantastic. And so we see this, and, and we're, we get excited too. Something's going to happen. And then you see him enter this room, and it's the upper room. The disciples are there, and he does something that's totally contradictory to the momentum that seems to be pushing him into this reigning role in world history. He bends down and he serves his disciples like a hired hand. And the, the questions start to come. Wh what's going to happen? And maybe a little bit of anxiety because you and I both know that, that Jesus and his disciples are poised to free the world of evil if they're given a chance. But Jesus doesn't seem to be taking that chance. He seems to be giving it up. And then they go to the garden secretly. Jesus seems overwhelmed, not really the place that you'd want a king to be. The soldiers come. They take him to some phony trial. Again, not the place you think a king is going to be going. Everything seems to be unraveling. And, and from our position outside of this story, we can see the good people, the bad people. The, we can see all the, all the sides to this story. And, and we know that Jesus and his disciples are the good ones and that the well, pretty much everybody else, and, and the evil angels are the bad people, and, and Jesus isn't taking up any arms. He's not fighting. He's not doing what he's supposed to do in conquering evil. It doesn't make sense. The next scenes turn your stomach as you watch Jesus be tried and wrongly convicted, whipped, a beam dropped on his back. He slowly makes his way up the hill where they put him on a cross. You, with his disciples, are expecting him to do something. You're expecting him to at least call the angels. Something's got to happen for evil to be defeated. But he doesn't. And in the face of the overwhelming force of the enemy, an enemy that's brought every weapon to bear, swords and whips and political maneuvering and lies and evil angels, against that overwhelming force, Jesus dies. And then his friends bury him in a tomb. What had been momentum and hope for a better world came crashing to the ground as that stone plunged the tomb into darkness. There is no more hope. I mean, from our vantage point, we can't see any way out of this. It is done. The enemy has won. And and I think that's a really critical point for us to think about in, this, in the arc of this story. If nothing else happens, then Jesus has lost. I mean, if, if this is the end, then Satan's won this victory. And, and 
to be clear, this is a huge, high-stakes situation. Satan has everything to lose if Jesus wins. And heaven has everything to lose if Jesus loses. And to all appearances, he has. It's, it's over. I want to I turn in, uh, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, and I want to look at this story uh, from a prophet's perspective, because uh, we're still in, in this story. We're in the middle of it, and it's darkness and death. That's what you see. Don't imagine that you know anything else, but turn back to Isaiah chapter 53, and let's read just three verses here. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 8 through 10. See if you can see what's been happening so far. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Do you see that in Jesus' story? He was taken away. He was cut off. Then in verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10 begins, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he, was, and he has put him to grief. If the story ended there, this would be the worst story of all time. Good stands to, uh, to, to fight evil. The hope is that it's going to be destroyed and good will be victorious, but it fails, and that's the end. That's not a good story. But Isaiah 53 doesn't end there, and neither does Jesus' story. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says in the last half, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Though he died at the beginning of the prophecy, by the end, he's alive again. He has prolonged days. Now, I just want to be clear. Jesus was dead. He was in the tomb. His heart was, had stopped beating. They had thrust a spear into his body just to make sure. They buried him in a tomb. The, the, the rock was rolled in front of the hole. There's no access. He was dead. But in our real-time view of the story... As, uh, as we see kind of the behind-the-scenes picture, we're seeing the evil angels victoriously celebrating Friday night and then Sabbath. And Sunday morning, you've got these soldiers there, like they're some emissaries of evil, standing before the tomb for whatever reason, to make sure nothing happens. And evil angels are standing there too. And then a bright light flashes, they all fall to the ground, and Jesus bursts out of the tomb. He's, he's alive, and he's victorious. He's, he's more powerful than all the evil forces. We thought he'd lost, but he hasn't. He's alive, and our hope has returned. You see, if there's no resurrection then Jesus' death, however beautiful that story is, just doesn't have the meaning. It's failure, not success. But because Jesus rose from the dead, his death is in place of ours, and we have the hope of resurrection in the future. The beauty of the story of the cross is that it doesn't end with the cross. That's not the final piece of the story. And I just want to point out, the cross is beautiful. The the story we just heard in song was amazing. It's an ugly beauty, to be sure, because you see this gnarly mess of a man beaten and, and abused and hung on a tree. But it's a beautiful mess. It's a it's an ugly beauty because it's our Savior dying for us. 
We look briefly at the story in Isaiah, but I want to take you to an older prophecy, one that goes way back to the beginning of the Israelite nation. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. This is a, a story that, that's told in a practice, a religious ceremony, and it's told every single year. And I just want to point out, this is fascinating to me, um, I, I probably shouldn't give you the backstory, but I, I, I saw a 15-minute video. Um, I say I shouldn't because my wife is probably going to chastise me later. But I saw this 15-minute video of a guy uh, saying really bad things about Walla Walla University uh, because they have an Easter morning service uh, tomorrow morning. And uh, he was like, you know, the beast and Catholicism. And I mean, he just had all kinds of interesting things to say about this. And, uh, and then I thought about Leviticus 23. We'll read it together, but I just want to highlight one point. It's Passover happens. That's the thing that precedes uh, verse 9, where we're going to begin reading. And, and then it's the Sabbath after Passover, and then the day after Sabbath. That's when this feast that we're about to read about begins. That's when it happens, the Sunday after the Sabbath following Passover. Every year, they do this. And what do they do it for? They do it as a prophecy that Jesus is coming again. It, just an interesting side point. Anyway, Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 9, uh, the Lord said to me, saying in verse 10, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a lamb, a year old without a blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It's a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. When I think about Jesus' resurrection, the first conclusion that, that I come to, and I think most of us come to, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And it's that Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's the first of the resurrection of life. Isn't that fantastic? When we see Jesus' uh, resurrection, we see our resurrection. We're not going to be in the grave forever. I, now, you're not in the grave right now, hopefully. Some of you may have fallen asleep, but please don't, not, not the sleep of death yet. But if, if you, you know, everybody's supposed to die, it's appointed for a man once to die, the Bible says that. Okay, so, so if you die, the hope is that there's going to be a resurrection. That's the promise. That's, that's what we're looking for. But I, I think there's another conclusion that Leviticus 23 encourages us to come to. Not just that he's the first fruits of our resurrection, but that he is this wave sheaf. Uh, in this, in this uh, offering, there's two-tenths of an ephah. That's also two omers, which maybe doesn't mean anything to you, but it's about five quarts of grain, 1.2 gallons. And uh, that's enough if you turn it into flour to bake about five loaves of, of modern bread. And it should be enough to feed a large family for a day. Now, I don't know about you, I don't eat five loaves of bread in my family a day, but I've only got four people in my family. Back in the Israelites' time, we're talking about grandparents and, and, and maybe siblings and grandchildren, and I don't have enough fingers, right? So a larger family. 
five loaves. It's not the only food they'll eat in a day, but it's enough to feed them for a day. Christ, he's resurrected, raised from the dead on the same day that the people are supposed to be celebrating this first fruits offering. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of life. He's that two-tenths of an ephah, that, that, that five quarts of, of uh, wheat. Now, remember how Jesus broke bread just a few days before his resurrection. It's Thursday night. They go into that upper room, and among the things that he did, he breaks bread, and he says in Matthew 26, 26, take, eat, this is my body. And then he gave them grape juice and said, this is my blood. Now, because it's done on Passover, probably also because Paul says so, we say this communion service is kind of a replacement for the Passover service. Is that kind of how you've thought of it? Maybe you've even wished that we could have a Passover service and, and kind of celebrate communion in that context just because it'd be cool, right? But I think Jesus was doing something, uh, something that th the disciples weren't even quite connecting the dots on. Because not only was this bread and wine part of the Passover service, but it's part of the first fruit service just a few days later. Jesus on Thursday night is promising them resurrection He's promising them that he's going to be their bread of life. Isn't that cool? It, you might want to study that out, and uh, if there's a problem with my thinking here, tell me. But I think it makes good sense. Jesus knew that he wasn't going to be just a once-for-all sacrifice. That's a fantastic thing all in itself. But he knew that he was also going to be our daily bread, our necessary stuff for living. Turn to, well, think of, of Luke before you turn to Romans. Luke 11.3, Jesus said this. He's t teaching the disciples to pray. And what does he teach them to, to say? Give us each day our daily bread. Jesus knows he's going to be that daily bread. He gives them that promise there on Thursday night. Now, turn to Romans chapter 8 verses 10 and 11, and we're, we're going to see 13 as well, because we're going to connect the dots and just make sure that you know that first fruits is tied into resurrection, and first fruits is absolutely tied into our daily power, the resurrection power God wants to give us in our lives. Romans chapter 8, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, underscore that word in your Bible if you've got it open. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, from, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then skip over to, to verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, who will have the first fruits, who will be, be the first fruits? No, it's, past, it, it's like present tense. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what our children's story was about, waiting, right? And, and sometimes we think of this hope as the waiting for Jesus' return, waiting for the resurrection. But even as he describes the hope of the future, Paul talks about the hope of the present as well. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. This idea brings power to Jesus' resurrection, power for my daily life. With Christ, I die in sin, or to sin, and with Christ, my sin is buried in the grave. And with God's Spirit, I rise to a new life in Christ. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This resurrection power, it's available for me and for you right now, not sometime in the future. One young person responding to the, uh, a survey by the Fuller Youth Institute, uh, they, they had this idea that a religion that only kicks in when you die is just not that great of a religion. Would you buy into a healthcare plan that only started paying out benefits after you died? That doesn't really make sense. Would you invest in a retirement plan that, that only, uh, well, it required you to work till, till you died, and then it started paying back? That doesn't seem like a good retirement plan, does it to you? Would you invest in a timeshare? I'm talking about a vacation timeshare, not, not like a, you know, a grave timeshare. Would you invest in a timeshare that only kicks in and allows you to visit after you die? It doesn't make any sense, does it? And it doesn't make any sense to buy into a religion that only kicks in after death too. And we talk about this eternal life and this future, and it's beautiful and it's hopeful and it's wonderful, but it's not present reality. And I think Jesus' resurrection is absolutely present reality. And Leviticus 23 and the first fruits idea is present reality stuff. Turn to Colossians 1, verse 27. Paul, explaining his mission to the church and his willingness to experience affliction for their sakes, he, he talks to these Christians, and he says that there's this mystery that generations have tried to understand. And he, and he says to them, to you, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. I know I put you in there. It says to them. But it's, what he's talking about is to the Christians here. To the Christians, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this isn't some future promise. It's a present reality for Paul. Christ in you today. Grain, it's this fundamental resource. It allows nations to thrive. Uh, you might be Eastern and, uh, and eat rice. How many of you like rice? Rice is good stuff, right? Or you might be European and eat that beautifully raised bread, maybe the hard crust. Those are good stuff, right? Or you might be, um, you might be Eastern and eat that flat bread. Um, or you might be Indian and it's naan. Or Ethiopian and it's this spongy stuff. I forget what they make that of, some really, really small grain. Whatever the grain it is, grain is essential for our nutrition. If we didn't have grain as a, as a, a world, we would be malnourished. And the truth is that if we didn't have Jesus, the bread of life, we would be dead. Spiritually, we would be dead. We wouldn't have life. And so Jesus gives us our nourishment. He's that fundamental component of a healthy life. Without him, you'd be as dead as the bones in Ezekiel 37. I mean, you knew I was going to Ezekiel 37, right? The valley of dry bones. It only makes sense in a sermon about the resurrection. Turn there, Ezekiel 37. I'll just read a couple verses to, to highlight the story. But um, Ezekiel, he's, he's taken by the Spirit in verse 1, and it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. I grew up in Kentucky. Some of you might know this already because I keep saying it over and over again. And in Kentucky, they, they like to hunt. Um, I think we have some hunters here. And, and maybe if you go out in the woods... In, uh, in Kentucky, anyway, you'd find bones. Uh, this is a mule deer from the Northwest. I borrowed it from Walla Walla University's biology department. Thank you, David. Um, but uh, I would find these things wandering around in the woods in Kentucky. 
Uh, I lived right next door to the, so I lived in Muhlenberg County. If you've ever heard bluegrass music, there's a, a song about it. You should look it up, Muhlenberg County. And uh, in Muhlenberg County, they have the, the Peabody Mines. That's what the song's about. And, and I had thousands of acres to roam in, and I could go up in the woods, and I could go down the, the gravel roads, and, and I found lots of these things. And guess what I did? I brought them home. And of course, my parent, being a, a, my mom, being a good nurse, she told me, put that down, it's full of diseases. So I will, I'll put it down for, for my mom's sake. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask for, for permission to tell that story. So um, in, in, like, I don't know, per, post-permission, can I use that story? <laughs> um, hopefully she's not watching at this moment. <laughs> but uh, when, when I look at these bones, when I was a kid, bringing them home, I never, ever once imagined that it would be able to come back to life. And Ezekiel, standing there in the midst of a valley filled with what must have been an army of bones, he did not imagine that those bones were going to come back to life. It wasn't even a thought that entered his mind. It was just a done conclusion. This is finality. This is death. This is, this is the end. There is no more of that mule deer. It's just, it's just a skull. Now, when he sees this valley filled with death and finality, God asks him a question in verse 3. And he says, son of man, can these bones live? It's a good question, isn't it? What about you? My, uh, my high school teacher, she used to call us over to her desk by saying, bring your sack of bones on over here. Maybe you feel like a sack of bones. And you're tentatively not quite sure and you're asking that question, can these bones live? But that's not the end of the story. Look in verse, uh, look verse, look in verse 5. There's a prophecy. Something new is going to happen. And he says to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put my breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And, and the prophecy doesn't just stop with the vision of the bones, because if it did, then we wouldn't really have anything but a cool story to tell. Hey, our God can make an army of bones come back to life, which is cool. Don't get me wrong. But if, it, if it's not applicable to me today, then what's the point of the story? And I think that the point of the story goes uh, in verse 13, where God says, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from the graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Dear sack of bones, God has promised resurrection power for your life today. Maybe you've been living with hopelessness, looking at your life as a pile of worthless, lifeless bones. You think your future is about as bright as the inside of a, of a coffin. If you've been living with your life in the, the, the story of the crucifixion, the darkness of Friday night, then it's time to wake up and it's time to celebrate because Resurrection is coming. 
Jesus did not stay in the grave, and neither will your sack of bones. God is planning on giving you a new life. Now look with me to one last story. It's found in John chapter 11, and we read it for our scripture reading. Uh, Thank you, Gabe, by the way. That was beautifully done. John chapter 11, and at Jesus, just the backstory of this, Jesus, he failed to come and, and save Lazarus. He failed. It didn't work. Well, it didn't work because Jesus didn't even come. He was called. He didn't come. And sometimes we have that experience. We ask Jesus for something, and, and it doesn't seem like it's happening. And, and our sickness turns to death. And that's what happened with Lazarus. He died. And with him died Mary and Martha's hope. Oh, sure, there was hope in some far-off future, but their present hope for today died. And they were, they were discouraged, and sadness filled their eyes. And Jesus, when he finally comes, he faces Martha, and he looks her in the eyes, in her sad, hopeless eyes, and he says, your brother will rise again. Imagine Jesus looking into your eyes today. And he says, you will rise again. Well, Martha, of course, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And maybe you feel like that too. I know I'll I'll be, I don't know, perfect or I'll be um, whole or I'll be liked or I'll be whatever in the last day when Jesus comes again. But Jesus responds to her in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha believed, and before too many tears were shed, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that very day. Not sometime in the future, but that day he raised Lazarus. And today, Jesus is saying the same to you. I've got resurrection power for you today. You've been living in a religion that that, uh, kicks in in the afterlife, maybe. Your hope is in some far distant future, but God's God's promise isn't just for the future, it's for today. Though maybe you're hoping that day will come soon, the resurrection, maybe maybe that hope is is this present reality to you, it's uh, it's not the, the resurrection power God has promised, is it? Just hoping in some distant future. Today, God's Spirit can speak life into your dry, barren soul. And Jesus promises that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you want life? Do you want eternal life? Do you want it now? Do you want Christ to live in you and his spirit to bring all of your dry bones back to life? You know, I'm I'm not a big fan of altar calls. Probably not because they're not important, but it kind of makes me a little bit nervous, like I'm feeling a little pushy. And then maybe you guys feel a little awkward, like, oh, I've got to stand and come forward. And, you know, and, and then you, you have to ask yourself that question, like, well, is, is his call specifically for me? Um, or, like, is, do I really want to tell people that I've committed sin and, and come forward? You know, what, you know what I mean? There's this awkwardness to an altar call. But I just want to say that right now seems like a really good time to have an altar call. And I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, you're sitting down, and, and life seems to be about movement, don't you think? And Jesus has just promised us life, life today, not in some far distant future. So kind of, you know, responding to that with some movement would be good. Uh, But also, we have deadness in us. Every one of you has something dead in your life. Maybe you're the the person that uh, is experiencing some addiction. 
And you, you need some resurrection power in your life to overcome, right? Maybe you've got something in your, in your marriage, in your family, some brokenness that only you know. God has a promise of resurrection power for that marriage relationship. And he has it for you today. Maybe there's, maybe there's something in your, in your life that, uh, well, I'll say it this way. Maybe you've been a murderer recently, a verbal murderer. You've gossiped and, and, and defamed somebody else's character. You know what? God has some resurrection power in your life. He wants to, to bring new life to that relationship that you've brought distrust to. He's got a promise of, of love among us. That promise is, is in the resurrection. Maybe your whole mission field is as dry as my grass is after a hot summer. You know, the mission to your family, to your neighbors, to your, to your coworkers. Maybe you haven't been a good personal witness lately. Well, I, t- I want to tell you that God has some resurrection power for that too. I mean, really, honestly, everybody, every one of us has something in our life that's dead. Would you agree? And, and so if, if that's the case then today we've got some celebrating to do. And celebrating is best done together, don't you think? Now, I'd I just like to ask the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, the ministry leaders, would you give us a good example and stand up? Maybe come forward or get near somebody that God is saying they need a little bit of, of God's love expressed through a warm handshake or a gentle hug. Thank you. Like I said, feel free to come forward. There's more space up here to... to, to you know, hug people and whatnot. Now, if you've been dealing with some dead bones in your life, these ministry leaders, I've, I've kind of put them on the spot asking them to, to exercise some spiritual leadership here. But maybe you need to, to have a little bit of communion here and rejoice with the resurrection power God has promised. Would you come forward to? Um, and maybe if you've been that one that's been a, a gossiper, um, well, you could come forward or you could go find that person you gossiped against and give them a hug. Maybe that's too much to ask. We are a community. And this is Jesus' promise of resurrection power for you and for all of us. And I'd just like to encourage you to join us. Maybe stand up where you are. Give the person next to you a a hug. Put your arm around their shoulder. I'm going to say one more thing as you do that. Resurrection power begins with belief. I mean, you saw Jesus raised from the dead. You saw Lazarus raised from the dead. You saw a whole valley of dry bones raised from the dead. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to give you new life? It begins with belief. Jesus asked that question. Do you believe to Martha, right? But, it, but uh, faith is also about a little bit of movement. You know, when you, when you are alive, you move. All of us move when we're alive. And, and Jesus, I think he's asking us to take a next step. And maybe if your experience is a besetting sin or an addiction, maybe your next step is to ask somebody to be an accountability partner and introduce some hard honesty into your life and and some help to to journey with you and help you overcome that. Maybe if your problem is in a marriage relationship, maybe what, what you need as a next step is a counselor or some forgiveness or some... Uh, some relationship skills, whatever the, the thing is that's missing there. Um, if, you're, if your brokenness is, is um, because of gossip or some thing that you've done against a, a fellow Christian, then maybe the next step is an apology. 
and, and some re rebuilding of trust. You see what I'm saying? There's a next step. God invites you into a faith step, a, a step that says, I believe you can bring new life here, and I'm going to take a step into the, into the waters, and I'm going to choose to allow you to recreate me. Jesus' resurrection power is here for you today. He wants to transform all that dead stuff in your life and make it live to his glory. And as we bow our heads, I just have this question. It's the same question Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Because all things are possible to the one who believes in Jesus' resurrection power. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, it's so good to know that you have brought not just the promise of a future resurrection, but the power of resurrection for our lives today. Thank you for this, this weekend where we re remember the death of Jesus and that you've poured out all of heaven on our behalf. Thank you that we can remember the resurrection of Jesus and that we can see the power of God's spirit, the power of, of your spirit in our lives, as, as Paul puts it, Christ in us. Lord, please give us your spirit today. Transform all our deadness and give us new life and be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.